Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. OFS has had its boots on the ground again. We'll look at what they said. Joe Phoenix wins her tribunal case against the OU. We'll consider the implications. And what's wrong with university governance? It's all coming up. Um, I, I've, I've long thought this. It is, you know, perplexing to me that ultimately oversight of a multi-hundred million pound organisation sits with a group of volunteers. There is something about the paying of, of, of even a small honorarium. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and here to express concerns without yet taking action, as usual, three top draw guests. Uh, in Westminster, Jonathan Simmons, his partner and Head of Education Practice at Public First. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, morning, Jim. Morning, everyone. Uh, I think my highlight of the week was following however many uh, consecutively named storms we've now had. Uh, it was actually a beautiful day back at home in Buckinghamshire yesterday, uh, so I managed to get my dog out in the sun, so it's gorgeous. Cracking stuff. In London, Steph Harris is Director of Strategy, Insight and Member Engagement at Universities UK. Steph, your highlight of the week, please. Um, well, my highlight is both a personal and a professional one and somewhat strangely relates to some excellent training I had earlier this week, uh, which taught me how to use my smartphone to capture and edit video content. So despite being firmly a millennial, I now know how to make a TikTok, which is great news for everybody. Great stuff. See Steph over on TikTok and in North Allerton this week, David Kernahan is Deputy Editor at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, good morning, Jim. Uh, it would have to be last night's local panto this isn't like your kind of regional panther where you washed up uh, soap stars and the rest of it. This is entirely jokes that you're not going to get unless you live within two miles of the place. Fantastic. Good stuff. So, yes, we start this week with inspections. OFS has been publishing more of its quality inspection reports, and it's bad news for Bucks, Jonathan. It is bad news for Bucks. Uh, bad news for Bucks and uh, moderate news, I think, for Wolverhampton. Um, so, yeah, so almost two years in, we've now got eight of these boots on the ground investigations that have been published. Seven of them, uh, including the two that have just come out this week, relate to business schools. Uh, one other one uh, relates to another area. It's worth noting that of these reports, Wolverhampton got a relatively clean bill of health. Uh, in particular, Wolverhampton was sort of criticised for the different reset options that students got. So depending on whether you started your course in September or January, uh, the OFS found that students had different number of attempts in order to reset the quality. Um, but the university has said that they would change that. Bucks New, I think it's probably safe to say, has had the most critical of all of the eight. So there were five different areas of concerns identified at the Bucks New report, um, including that the kind of the material was not up to date, the material wasn't academically rigorous enough. Uh, there was an issue particularly about continuation rates about some of the students. Um, it is worth saying, of course, uh, as, as in almost all cases, uh, the university has slightly pushed back on the findings. Uh, it's pointing out various positive scores that it's got from things like its NHS, from its NSS score. Um, and again, and I suspect we'll talk about this later, both universities also complained that it wasn't entirely clear what the OFS was looking at uh, and why it was there in the first place. Mm, interesting stuff. I mean, I, I, I looked at them in detail as did you, DK, and, and, and I guess one of the really interesting things uh, near the start of the box one was um, focused on the kind of cohort of students and, and that, that cohort became significant in the findings, didn't it? 
That's right. So, I mean, like many providers, uh, Bucks is looking at a period of substantial expansion, more than a thousand students in that particular subject area now than there were uh, two or three years ago. And as a part of that, the report talks about a specific international cohort. So this is a whole bunch of people from us, um, a single country, all recruited outside of the standard UCASI process. And it appears that uh, because this was done externally to where the university usually works, that there were less stringent checks made on English language skills and on prior attainment. Now, um, you can argue this in both ways. You can say, okay, these students might not have been on, uh, been best served by being on that course at all. And I think there's a lot of merit to thinking about that with certain kinds of international recruitment. Uh, the other thing is, if they are going to be on that course, if you are going to recruit students with that level of need, you need to put the support in place to get them. And you see in the... Uh, um, the report that an astonishing 78% of those uh, large group of, inter- of international students from a single country, they failed their first assessment. Uh, and there was a, um, a, a lot of reported discussion like, okay, well, I mean, what do we do now? Well, you can't just chuck 78% of that cohort off the course all at once, because that's going to make your continuation stats look bad. But you can't realistically keep people on a course that are not going to benefit f- from the course it is just not fair at all so that was a particularly interesting strand in this report i think for me i would i would also add that um buckinghamshire new university is the university of the year for student support according to the daily mail yes well um i mean look steph the, 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 i guess the allegation you know that that story that was in the press a couple of weeks ago about york the kind of general allegation that, that kind of floats around this for the sector is in, in need of money it is recruiting students who um aren't suitable for courses and then not giving them the right support yeah, I mean, I think um, DK has given a good overview of uh, of what the kind of um, Buck's new uh, report found, and I guess some of the challenges uh, related to kind of um, growing courses uh, at rate, regardless of whether you know the, where those students um, come from. Um, I think Buck's new is kind of uh, you know in its st- public statement has kind of made clear some of the um, the steps that it's it's taken uh, in response. But uh, of course, it's kind of difficult for universities to um, plan numbers uh, in the kind of um, I guess turbulent environment uh, in which we're in, and and I think it kind of highlights some of the the challenges of that. Mm. Jonathan, does this, um, you know, do these sort of things get noticed? Do you think in Westminster, you know, you know, does it feed into the, you know, that kind of ge- that that general, you know, drumbeat of negativity around universities? Do you think? I think it probably does. In truth, I mean, not least because these reports are now dropping at fairly regular intervals. So, you know, it is possible that on any one particular day, people don't notice these two reports or UEL that came out the other week or, or BPP that came out a few few months ago. But the, the, the chances are that over a serious, significant period of time, what you'll see is regular reports, and some of this will get splashed in the media, particularly the kind of Buck's new findings, and will just give the general impression of a sort of widespread quality issue. Now, on the one hand, you know the OFS is doing these investigations precisely because it does have a regulatory duty to look at low quality. On the other hand, in most instances, it has given the universities a clean bill of health. So um, uh, I, I do, I do, I do have a lot of sympathy with the universities that say we don't know why the regulators here. Like, what, what are you, what are you looking for? What are your specific concerns? Let us know. In the same way that you know, when Ofsted comes in, it's it's pretty clear what they're looking for, and you as a school can show all the relevant sort of counterfactuals. On the other hand, I do think it is it is legitimate, and the university sector needs to understand that when 
uh, there is a kind of concern about quality. It's not unreasonable for a regulator to say, let's go and have a look and see what's going on. DK, I mean, one of the things I thought was 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 kind of, you know, visceral in the report. I mean, there are various bits where, you know, there were actual lesson observations being undertaken by the inspection team. Um, and there was quite a bit of detail about what they found in individual lessons. You know, there's, there's this tale in the report about students apparently um, being on their phones and being asleep. That it, it that, 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 that is new. And it, I'm not sure that it feels fair in comparison to some of the ways in which we've assessed quality in the past, that sort of scale? So this is the first of these reports that we have seen uh, direct evidence taken from teaching observations. We've not done this as a sector since the days of subject review back in the 90s and early noughties, that we've actually had assessors in a classroom and it, and indeed looking at materials, looking at course materials, looking at the training. Uh, there was a huge chunk of this Bucks New report that was you've not got any references on these slides and even though I mean visually you can understand why you wouldn't put a lot of references on slides in terms of them being shared as an artifact related to um, an element of the course you would expect teachers to want to uh, encourage students to use them in revision and you need the reports there so this is really really in-depth and it was quite surprising. It probably explains the lengths of time that it took has taken from this report to emerge. I mean, these are reports that are commissioned back in May of 2022. Uh, the investigation team was brought together in October of 2022. So there has clearly been a lot of discussion between Bucks New and the kind of layer of lawyers that uh, makes up a large part of the Office for Student staff. And very carefully, this report has been uh, filleted. But even so, the fact that stuff like that is getting through that process is in there and is robust enough, talking about students um, be, uh, like, I mean, being encouraged to discuss um, a topic as a part of a seminar and then being told not to do it too loud, to be a bit quieter in the discussion. And you think, well, that's an interesting thing. And then at the end, them all being brought back and it um, being said that, it, that the ensuing discussion wasn't really facilitated in a way that brought about learning. These are quite specific things. And it is quite surprising that the Office for Students would go down to this level. Of course, on the other hand, should students be experiencing lectures that might not be up to the academic standard, that are not engaging? And uh, as the report argued, is that lack of engagement in the lessons linked to the, the, the lack of participation and attendance that um, the university and the school had been experiencing more generally? Yes, possibly. Yes. I mean, look, Steph, I guess the other question here is, I mean, I mean, certainly in the Bucks News statement, there is, there's concern about the kind of process, right? You know, why did OFS come, you know, and so on and so on. And, you know, I guess on the one hand, the sector, the, you know, vice chancellors and so on would say the process is still fairly opaque and so on. But I guess, you know, to some extent, if students were to read this report, they, they're potentially thinking, well, finally, someone has noticed these things that, you know, never get noticed by the quality assurance mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of points that's really important to make there. And and this kind of goes back to Jonathan's point about the sector taking quality seriously. I mean, my response would be that it does. And I think we're, we're really clear that kind of good regulation is in everyone's best interest, including universities and the regulator, but most importantly, students' best interest. Um, so I would completely agree with that. 
I think we're also really clear that investigations actually are probably an important part of a risk-based regulatory approach um, and are entirely uh, appropriate in that sense. The kind of challenges um, that you've kind of you've highlighted there are kind of twofold the lack of transparency around the process and I do think that lack of transparency um, is um, part of the reason why some of these investigations are taking so long and and I guess you've kind of continually highlighted on wonky I guess some of the the timelines associated with these investigations and and the length of time they take to come to inclusion Um, so yeah you know I think Bucks's statement points to it that uh, greater transparency um, about what happens before an investigation, what it's about, what's going to happen during an investigation, and what happens after it um, will mean that hopefully um, there's greater transparency around the process, but also that the process can happen more quickly. I mean, on the point that DK raises around the level of pedagogical detail that the OFS goes into in these investigations, I have to say I did that. I did find that slightly troubling, um, and I say this as someone that's a strong supporter of, of of regulation in exactly the same way that Steph set out. I mean, the honest truth is that if you look at who most of the investigators hired by the OFS are to do these boots on the ground, I'm not entirely convinced they are well qualified to make accurate pedagogical judgments about the structure of particular higher education courses. Uh, you know, decisions as to when you facilitate, how you facilitate the, the 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 balance between what the lecturer is conveying via sort of direct instruction versus what's then done in group activity. I mean, these are complicated discussions to have. I, I in general, I am all in favour of universities making those decisions, and I think I would have preferred it had the IFS focused on outcomes uh, rather than uh, also opining on some of the methods taken to get there. But that's, I mean, but but you know, interesting. I mean, you work right across, you know, schools and and, and colleges and universities, Jonathan. Obviously, if OFS was to only focus on outcomes, to some extent, there could be all sorts of things going on because, in some cases, students kind of you know inputs in in terms of their socioeconomics or class or so on, regardless of the experience they get, are probably going to mean decent labour market outcomes and hanging on in there because they've got plenty of money. The, the actual outputs do matter too, don't they? I mean, they certainly do in schools. Yeah, they do. They do. So I, I completely agree with that. So 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 at, at the risk of sort of slightly going down a rabbit hole into what Ofsted would look at in a school, Ofsted absolutely does not just look at outcomes. It doesn't just say if you've got good exam results, you're a good school precisely for that sort of socioeconomic skew that you do talk about. So, so Ofsted will look at things like in general, how teaching and learning structured, in general, how your curriculum is done, in general, how much progress different groups of students make. But one of the things that Ofsted has explicitly moved away from in the last few years is a judgment on type of teaching quality. So the school sector was absolutely paralysed about five or ten years ago by a sense that Ofsted had a preferred style of teaching, right? Do inspectors prefer to see a teacher standing at the front of a classroom talking, or do inspectors prefer to see you know, a teacher who runs more group work and more interactive activity. And and the truth is that both of those can work and both of them can be really bad. And Ofsted spent 10 years being at pains to say, we do not have a preferred model for teaching here. It's not just about exam grades and outcomes, but neither do we really get into the weeds as to how you deliver that. If you are making the judgments that you think is right in your institution based on your students, and you've got good evidence to show why you've done that and what's happening, it's not for us to judge, you know, the balance between direct instruction and group work. And, and I worry that the OFS may 
start to tip into exactly that kind of pedagogical dead end. Well, let me let, let, let me ask you the let me let me ask you a question that feeds into it, DK. I, I guess I guess one of the things that that is a kind of version of that in the report is that um, you know to some extent, Buxney was saying, look, we're delivering skills outside of the formal curriculum and through centralised student support and through opportunities, and 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 the inspectors come in and go, well, we want to see more of that embedded in the curriculum now. You know that that is a view, but it's not necessarily, certainly not a universal view around the sector. And it, 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 I struggled with that bit, thinking, you know, is that really the only way that universities that are teaching business and management are now allowed to do skills? For example, it is a concern, and I would note in this context that the Office of Students recently got rid of um, a designated quality body, the QAA, for, and this is in quotes, uh, for not being sufficiently engaged in outcomes. So they can't really have it both ways, can they? Um, in terms of in t- terms of the idea of a preferred method of teaching, if you ask the OFS this, if you ask any of the investigators this, they'd say, no, of course we haven't got a preferred method of teaching. But because, as has been highlighted by Jonathan and Stephanie, there is that little niggling concern about, okay, who are these inspectors and what is the rubric that they are working to? I mean, I mean, what is their assessment matrix? What are they looking for? You do read these reports if you are in an institution with a slightly wary, okay, this is what they want, we had better be doing that. I think that would be dangerous for the sector. The Office of Students and um, DFE, for that matter, likes to say a lot about the diversity of the sector as a strength. The fact that students have got the option to choose different models of teaching and different approaches. So some students might be attracted to the university, uh, to uh, Buckinghamshire New University, because they like the idea of the optional modules that they've just brought in, where you can have a little 10 credit module and do something completely different to the rest of your course. That generates key skills you can do one on student leadership Jim if you want uh, which I think is a fantastic idea and is um, an approach that I mean you've seen and commented a lot in your tours of Europe so the idea that the office of students is going to start throwing its weight around in this sphere it could potentially have a way of saying okay there is only one way to teach students in a university setting uh, doing business studies when quite obviously to anybody who's taught in any kind of classroom there is not just one way that works yeah and and just on this wider question steph i mean i, I you know the the, the uh, on the one hand ofs has, has obviously said you know that to some extent it's targeting institutions in each of these exercises which apparently have not got great outcomes on whichever dashboard and and i guess the the, the danger is that lots of universities that have got really pretty good outcomes think well you know we don't need to worry we don't really need to re- read the report but it does strike me that there are some issues in the report that potentially could be affecting all sorts of universities and in this case particularly universities that have rapidly increased their international students in business schools yeah i mean i don't i don't think there's a risk that um, people aren't going to read it <laughs> i think that people are kind of interested particularly this time around right to, to understand how the process work and works and, and what the outcomes are and i would agree that one of the um upsides of uh, these reports being made public is that they're there for people to read and to learn from and actually i think some of the reflections and some of the discussions I've been um, involved with with leaders in the sector have reflected that that actually it's really useful to um, understand not only how the process work from from some of these um, reports, but
but also to understand um, some of the issues highlighted and what the universities in questions have have done to to, to respond to the to the concerns highlighted, and also you know perhaps where good practice exists and, and that's drawn out. So um, yeah, hopefully the, I'm sure people are reading them and, and learning from them. And then one final thing, Jonathan, uh, at DFE's behest, under a bureaucracy review a few years ago. Um, OFS dropped random sampling. Um, should it bring it back? Ah, uh, blimey, there's a question. Um, I don't think the case for that has been has been proven. I think given that, you know, there's a lot of other investigations which OFS has currently got underway. So, you know, obviously Sussex uh, investigation still carries on. There's a lot of investigations that have been launched into computer science courses that we haven't seen yet. There's obviously the recent work around uh, franchising, which is now going to lead to a whole bunch of new investigations. There's discussions on grade inflation that's going to lead to investigations. I think given that there are limited resources, I think at the moment we're better off targeting on a risk basis rather than random sampling. Well, there you go. Uh, plenty more on the site on all of this. And, uh, for now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Mark Bennett, Director of Audience and Insight at Fine University, and this week on Wonky, I've been asking whether anybody actually knows how to fund PGT study. A recent announcement in Wales means that the only part of the UK to have offered a means-tested element of its postgraduate student loan now won't. And what that means is that the UK now has four separate versions of a one-size-fits-all approach to funding the most diverse part of the sector. So I've had a think about what that means for students, the questions it raises for policy, and what could potentially be done in response. A high-profile case involving an academic versus the Open University has been ruled on, DK. Yeah, so this is the Joe Phoenix case. She's a former professor of criminology at the Open University. She's currently a professor of criminology at the University of Reading. Uh, so this was her employment tribunal hearing, uh, which found that she was uh, constructively and thus unfairly dismissed um, uh, by her former employer. This is the case, if you recall, previous coverage. This is her gender critical research network that she was a part of, and the public and private commentary on the uh, decision to start that particular um, research uh, research network that then ensued. Uh, it's important to be clear what this ruling is and what it's not. It is an employment tribunal uh, thing. It uh, does say a couple of little things about academic freedom and whether or not something like um, a public open letter that's being signed by multiple people is uh, constitutes academic freedom or harassment. But it does not really say anything on what I think is the wider and more salient issue here, which is the conflict between the duty to uh, protect from harassment people with protected characteristics and the duty to protect people from harassments that have protected belief, all of which is amplified and stirred up by the new duties to protect freedom of speech at universities at all costs. So it's a complex series of issues issues here. And although uh, the, the supporters of uh, uh, Joe Phoenix are rightly celebrating the outcome and we wait for the ruling that will say um, what kind of compensation she's up for, uh, we do not yet really have any clarity on those wider issues. Jonathan, I guess, you know, once you've established that gender critical beliefs are kind of protected under the Equality Act, and, and, you know, that has been contested in the past, but, you know, there's now a number of cases that are sort of, you know, reinforcing that legal opinion and tribunals and, you know, what have you. Once you've established that, 
I guess what's interesting for me in the case is that some of it just, you know, kind of looks like kind of open and shut, you know, problematic behavior from other people, you know, in quite, quite up close and personal. But actually, some of the stuff that's about kind of public criticism gets quite interesting in the intersection with free speech, doesn't it? Well, precisely so. And, and, and this is why, you know, this is a very, very tricky issue for all universities and indeed all student unions, precisely because, you know, this is case law. So although it casts some precedent, it, it isn't the same as kind of changes in primary legislation. So you can't automatically assume that a different tribunal uh, would make exactly the same judgment in, in, in a very, very similar case in a different university. So that's complexity number one. And complexity number two is precisely as you say, there's an interrelationship here between two groups of protected beliefs or protected characteristics and trying to make a judgment as a university or as a student union, how you finagle your way between the two is is tricky. And you know, uh, this is this is one of the, the the fun jobs that Arif Ahmed will have. And, you know, he's keeping his head down at the moment. It's pretty clear that they don't want to talk about this unless and until there's a kind of direct case in front of them rather than rather than the OFS commenting on, you know, other other cases. But, you know, it's not just on this issue, although this is this is one of the ones that comes to pass. I mean, we've seen in the US most recently and, and, and a little bit here. The discussions around, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, pro-Palestinian views, you know, Jewish groups on campus. There are a lot of issues here where two sets of protected rights uh, come into conflict with each other and trying to work out what your policy is, what your procedure is, how you can manage what students do, how you can manage what academics do in a context where universities are full of people who have a correct and fervent belief in freedom of speech. But nevertheless, where there is, I think, something of a cultural issue on some of these areas, which does need to be looked at, this is this is going to be very, very difficult for the sector uh, to handle over the next few years. Steph, obviously, you know, I mean, one of the things that this sort of thing does is kind of add to the intel that might uh, inform a decision of a disciplinary panel or a grievance panel or a, or a registrar on, you know, the kind of fine legal balances between these two things. But I guess, you know, the forthcoming in England, at least, harassment duty is about trying to get students to understand these things. And Arif Ahmed will also be promoting a duty to promote free speech out to students. And, and once we get this out to students, this gets even more difficult, doesn't it? It does. And I, I mean, I completely um, agree with what Jonathan's just said there, right, which is that um, university's duty around freedom of speech and academic freedom um, is has to be balanced with um, other duties placed on them um, to kind of ensure the the kind of safety, dignity and tolerance on, on campus. And that's a really difficult balance to strike. I think the other thing it kind of highlights, uh, to me at least, is that often those two things are kind of put in tension or kind of conflict. Um, but this case and, and others like it kind of make it clear that you have to do both, that you know, that you have to um, protect academic freedom of speech and of freedom of speech, but you also have to create the culture and uh, make sure that you're creating a culture in which people are treated with kind of mutual dignity and, and respect and, and tolerance. And that that is a really, really, really hard thing to do. And I'm sure the OFS is um, grappling with that as it thinks about the two things that you've just mentioned there as duties around harassment, but but also the freedom of uh, speech duties and, and Arif Ahmed's uh, new job. Um, and I think it probably highlights that, you know, the kind of um, one of the most useful things that can be done in this space is that sharing of practice is um, helping one another understand how you balance those two things rather than um, perhaps draconian uh, regulatory action but I guess we'll see where we end up.
Yeah, I mean, DK, let me give you an example, right? So I was talking to a student union the other day and they were saying, you know, so so we're going to be under this duty to basically make sure that there's no chilling effects, that controversial speakers can come and so on and so on. I said, yes, yeah, yeah. And then they were saying, well, what if the controversial person is a member of staff? Because having just read that Joe Phoenix thing, they're like, well, well, maybe we shouldn't have someone uh, you know, kind of, you know, tearing a strip off the controversial member of staff if they're, if they're actually working at the institution. And it feels like the rules of kind of protest and criticism and free speech and so on will end up being different if we're talking about someone within an institution as opposed to, I don't know, JK Rowling or Rishi Sunak or whatever. It's an issue that kind of cuts to the core of what academia really is. One of the, the tensions within universities is on on one level, there is a an employee-employer relationship that you work for somebody, you've got a boss, you've got a line manager, you've got all these uh, policies you need to comply with, you've got um, jobs that you need to do, basically, like any other employer. But on the other hand, you've got the, ac- the academic world in which... Um, you have a certain number of freedoms. I mean, freedom of speech, freedom of academic thought, freedom to write and publish and research about stuff that might be uncomfortable or challenging or troubling to other groups of people. Um, The idea that you can have uh, both of them at the same time is, I think, is where we've landed. We're seeing this again as has been noted in the concerns about the support of some people for uh, for the idea of um, a free Palestine. Um, for instance, on one level, you have to say, okay, that is a, um, a reasonable opinion to hold. You can see how, how people might logically come to that opinion. And on the other hand, you see that opinion is obviously of concern to people in... Um, in the university who will have the opposing um, view on that issue. Uh, so what this um, this uh, judgment does is it looks primarily, I think, at the idea of academics as employee. It looks at, okay, these are the policies, this is the social media policy, and there's several passages it um, goes through university policies, basically line by line, and say, okay, this behavior infringes it, this behavior does not infringe on it. But on top of that, it does try to layer this academic idea that nothing should be beyond the pale, that you should be able to speak as long as you speak civilly on any topic to anyone, and that should be up for um, a debate. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to get an answer on this. I think this is always going to be a tension in universities. And as you say, this is something that students in SUs have to deal with in the same way as academics, in the same way as people external to universities have to deal with, that you have to keep these two overlapping but non-complementary models of of membership in academia, I guess, in, in your mind at the same time. Yes. I mean, in the wider politics, Jonathan, obviously, um, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, Joe Phoenix gave a really interesting interview, I thought, on on Woman's Hour this week and, and, you know, kind of described her experiences and, you know, really kind of described this kind of sense that she was kind of hounded out of the institution. But around the edges of that, then in the kind of wider politics, there's there's a sense on, on one side of the House of Commons that, you know, there's a, there's a set of kind of very aggressive, woke actors, a- activists inside public services that are imposing views on other people. And then we also actually got a speech from Keir Starmer this week, effectively accusing accusing 
the Conservatives are kind of whipping that up because they've got nothing else to say on on the other issues that affect Britain. Yeah, so I think I think there's two there's two separate things going on here. So the Conservatives have I'm talking purely in terms of of electoral politics here. The Conservatives have a much easier job, which is all of their base, such that it still exists, um, and all of their MPs are universally of one view in this debate. And there's a reason why Rishi Sunak keeps on saying that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party can't define what a woman is, because that issue unites their base. I would I would I would say that that ninety nine percent of people who vote conservative or who are intending to vote conservative are very, very firmly of that view and, you know, would be on the Joe Phoenix side of the argument to simplify things. The Labour Party electoral coalition is much, much more tricky. So one of the things I think is interesting is that actually, and, and my, my public first colleague, Tom Hamilton, wrote on this really well recently. If you recall, you know, Keir Starmer taking the knee on the day of the George Floyd funeral, what was that, three and a half years ago, that is still a picture that is used a lot. Yeah, that is still all, a kind of all over Twitter is, again this week, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. But what's interesting is that in the three and a half years since he did that, and the general consensus in the Labour Party HQ that that picture was a mistake, he has entirely shut up about this issue because... He has people on both sides of the debate, and there are Labour MPs and there are Labour activists who think that uh, Labour absolutely should be leading into uh, a sort of broader, more inclusive, more woke approach to this. And there are a bunch of people who think that uh, not just that this is electorally difficult, but that actually, you know, that that way lies electoral madness, that actually the median voter is either confused by this or probably instinctively sympathetic to, again, what for shorthand we can call the Joe Phoenix side of this. What is interesting about Keir Starmer's speech uh, to the to the sort of ch- charity and civil society group the other week, I mean, he's absolutely right. You know, when the Tories are, are resorting to having to call out the Royal National Lifeboat Institution and the National Trust, two institutions, incidentally, which have like 90% universal popularity within the country, that is that is slightly odd. You know, when, when, you're, when your electoral strategy have forced you into saying that the National Trust is woke, you've probably called yourself up a political cul-de-sac. But one of the things that is going to be interesting for Labour, you know, as and when they assume office, is that that electoral coalition between a lot of their younger voters, a lot of students, a lot of graduates, and some of their other voters, there is not universal views on what Labour would do about this situation. And some of these, you know, cultural political issues are going to come slap bang to hit uh, a Keir Starmer led number 10. Uh, Steph, back inside universities, um, I guess, you know, one of the one of the other things that kind of surrounds all the commentary on cases like this is this idea that EDI departments have got too big. They're being told what to do by Stonewall. They they are resembling activists rather than doing useful work. And it's a waste of money when there's not a lot of money around. You know, is there a you know, what should universities do in terms of that that kind of EDI function that, um, you know, we've come to understand and, and recognise? Look, I mean, I, th- I think, as I said uh, in my previous answer, right, that this this case and others like it have very much made it clear that academic freedom and EDI and kind of cultural work associated with making sure that universities are open and tolerant places where you can have hard discussions are incredibly important. Um, You kind of can't do one uh, in this kind of day and age uh, without doing the other. Um, And so, I mean, it's up to individual universities to work out what that looks like for them and and how to kind of best do it uh, within their own institutions. Um, But I think it's clear that kind of both need to exist and you can't have one without the other. 
So much of students' lives takes place under the radar, yet it's students' encounters around campus, their confidence in independent learning and the pressures of juggling their work and personal commitments that shape how they engage with teaching and learning. To really enable students to thrive requires knowing about the full extent of their lives, not just the bits that universities can most readily see and touch. But time and money are in short supply for universities and students, and with no let-up on funding in sight, carefully choosing interventions that will help students to both survive and thrive has become more important and easier even tougher. Deepening our collective understanding of what is in university's gift to influence and how to do the things that make a difference is vital. So at our Secret Life of Students event, we'll be interrogating the contemporary higher education policy questions through the student lens, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and student union managers, to figure out how to respond in the student interest. What role should universities and SUs play in stoking or calming conflicts on campus? What are the expectations that we should place on students themselves to create a good learning experience? How are they learning and how can we both measure it and support it outside of the classroom? On the day, we'll round up key figures into the student experience from the past year and launch exciting new findings on the student experience beyond the classroom. That's The Secret Life of Students, London, 12th of March. Book online at wonky.com. See you there. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, finally, some university boards are cliquey and intimidating, Steph. Yes. Uh, so there was a report uh, published uh, this week, um, which was funded by the Council for the Defence of the British Universities um, by the University of Manchester's Stephen Jones and Diane Harris. And it uh, looked at um, university governance by interviewing uh, 47 current and former governing uh, board members um, at universities in England. Um, the research, as you said, uh, suggested um, that some boards are cliquish um, and that perhaps um, some of them are also hierarchical and closed in nature. Some of the interviewees also commented that it was really difficult um, uh, to balance um, an overwhelming focus on finance um, with uh, some of the kind of educational principles that clearly under underpin universities. I should say that they did also slightly more positively say that the opportunity to um, contribute to governance in higher education um, was repeatedly framed as an honour by those that they spoke to and that there were some examples of impressive local practice. I guess there was one comment in the report that really stood out to me um, and that was around um, being student governors and, and the comment in particular was for student governors and female members in particular the atmosphere was said to be daunting at times with a direct quote from one of the interviewees saying I always felt like I had to make allies because I was young because I was a woman and because I was the only student governor. Um, I've been in 
two of those three uh, positions personally when I was um, a woman and young on, on a university board as a sabbatical officer. Um, and luckily, that wasn't my experience. You know, I felt empowered uh, in that situation. Um, but I can see how it would easily not, you know, be easy not to feel that way and, and for that to become true. Yes. I mean, it, it, Jonathan, it's interesting, this report, isn't it? Because on the one hand, there's actually some stuff in here kind of about recruitment and structure and who is on these bodies and, and where they're drawn from. But on the other hand, there's a bunch of stuff in here that's actually about behaviour and culture, what people say, how they say it, how people respond to each other. And that second one is much harder to sort of audit and change, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. And, and you know, universities are not, are not unique in this. I mean, I've, I've sat on, you know, corporate boards, charity boards, you know, school school governing boards. And, you know, I recognise an awful lot when I read this report about how people are recruited, are there cliques, are things, you know, all done on the sides, the relative power of the exec versus the non-exec. I mean, these are these are common issues in all boards. Um and, and they are they are very, very difficult to address. And and in fact, you know, you, you, you address one by addressing the other, at least in part people respond to each other differently if you've got a more mixed group. You know, you don't have women and students on your board just because you need to have them for a representative purpose. You have them because it leads to a better discussion and a more interesting discussion than a bunch of, uh, you know, 50-something white investment bankers. So you change culture, at least in part, by the way in which you recruit people. I should say there was one thing, though, which I really, really disagreed with in the report and I found very problematic and, uh, you know, potentially linked to to, to sort of the way in which uh, the report was framed, which is... Of course, university governing body meetings should be talking about finance. Of course, they should be talking about money. This is not about marketization. This is not about neoliberalism. This is not about the fact that people don't want to talk about educational issues. Is that every single university in this country is under sustained financial pressure? And of course, the governing body, as the most senior decision-making and oversight mechanism of universities in this country, should be talking about finance. And frankly, if they weren't, I would be staggered. And if I went to a university governing board meeting and they had lots of very interesting discussions about education and lots of very interesting discussions about kind of progression i would be like sure that's brilliant are we going to be able to do that next year or are we about to have to close some courses or lay off some people or increase our international recruitment can we talk about that please um there is no shortage of places in universities to talk about education there are not enough discussions uh, about finances and uh, long may governing bodies continue to talk about money <laughs> now I, I, I mean look look dk that's actually a really interesting point isn't it because you know to some extent in in the in the state we are in right now um, there is bound to feel like a kind of hierarchy of importance of discussion, right? So, you know, money, can we pay off those debts we took out for those buildings five years ago? You know, all of that kind of stuff is going to rise to the top of the priority list, isn't it? But but I guess, you know, talking to student governors yesterday, I was at Advanced HE Student Governors event yesterday, what they would say is they're not upset about having to talk about buildings and finance and so on, but they're upset that the kind of impacts on people and the impacts on teaching and learning and so on aren't taken into account in those discussions and, and and is that is that fair do you think i don't know what boards people are going to where the interest of um people and the um human act impact of decisions are not being taken into account because in i mean in my limited experience of university boards and other boards uh those i mean that's kind of the point of the board if you want to make um a, a financially based decision um and you would um you want to do it in a purely technocratic way you wouldn't even take it to the board you'd be like okay this is the data you'd um give them um, um a very technical presentation and then say and this is the answer according to our experts uh i mean sometimes you need to do that uh there was an interesting section in the report about the idea of the board being stage managed in a certain extent that you got the impression that the the conversation at 
aboard is not the real conversation, that the real conversation is has happened um, beforehand and the decision has been already made. Um, I know on the occasion I've taken um, the minutes for formal committees at universities, it's occasionally possible to actually r- write a complete set of minutes before you have the uh, meeting. I mean, just because the decisions are so technical and so cut and dried and there are so many policies in play. I mean, you have the discussion, you capture the points that are made in the the discussion, but in terms of making an actual decision, it doesn't happen. So um, I did like this report um, in that it... um, it rehearsed a lot of important points that are made again and again, but need to keep being made about board diversity, about board inclusive, inclusivity of, um, I mean, I mean, going through the intellectual exercise of explaining the wild world of um, university finance to lay people is important and is helpful in checking your underlying assumptions if you're getting really, really technical about things but it did play into i mean what i think is rather the cdbu house view which is everything would be great if it was some kind of imagined 1950 and as um jonathan uh, pointed out that's not the case it's not going to come back we are going to be making horribly difficult discussions about i mean university activity about finances about borrowing and lending about um losing potentially departments or courses um all of this is going to bubble up there precisely because of the precarious state that the uk's universities are in steph one of the conversations that we were having at the event yesterday so a student governor said look um should should i become more like them where i understand all of the stuff they're talking about the kind of technical stuff around finance and estates and so on so that i can contribute or should i try to persuade them to become more like me where i'm thinking more about the impact on students and the impact on staff and so on and so on you, you know you must you must think back to when you were on one of these boards and think you know do i lean in or do i get them to lean towards me yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's an appropriate answer both and, you know, I think it's I think it's right that it's really important that um, students are empowered to take part in the discussions uh, on those boards, right? And so some of the things that you've mentioned are integral part, in my opinion, of empowering students to take part in those discussions. So kind of training around finance, you know, understanding uh, what their role is, what other people's roles are. I think it's also right that then you should try and steer that discussion or steer the way in which the board operates um, so that you know the thing that you can bring to the board your kind of lived experience the, your understanding of the experience of others in that institution um, are brought to the front and center of those discussions I guess I would also say that I kind of um, agree uh, with um, both Jonathan and, and DK to an extent that it is entirely right and proper that university boards should be discussing financial data, right? They, they absolutely should. Uh, and thinking about um, how they ensure that they are going concern. Uh, but that kind of can't come and shouldn't come at the cost of uh, making sure that they're not also thinking about their educational purpose and how they're delivering that. And again, in my experience, you know, I, I don't see that. I think I think they do do both. But clearly, there are ways in which you can uh, always improve and learn how to do both 
better um, and think about how you are considering the financial decisions that you're making in the context of um, who you are as a university. There aren't many universities out there that exist to make a profit. You know, they exist to be a going concern for their other missions, which are around higher education and research and, and the public good. So, of course, it's important that that's kind of central as to what a university body um, is, is discussing, a governing body is discussing. Um, but it's also important uh, that they're discussing how they kind of make the books balance at the end of the day. One, one other question on this, Jonathan. I mean, you know, one of the fun things that I did before the event yesterday was actually pull out loads of the quotes from lay governors that, that were also saying things that were similar perhaps to that students go, student governors would say, but perhaps they're less likely to say it out loud in terms of struggling with paperwork or whatever, because they're supposed to be the great and good, right? You know, it's easy to kind of identify student members or staff members as victims when it's, there's plenty of lay members that feel like that too. But, but you know, one of the things that strikes me about lots of our visits around Europe is that uh, boards are frequently professional and paid and you know to some extent take that role much more seriously as a result now you know that we have volunteer governors in in the uk largely because you know it's linked back to charitable status but um on the basis that it is legally perfectly possible to pay governors we should be shouldn't we a hundred percent we should um I, I've, I've long thought this it is you know perplexing to me that ultimately oversight of a multi-hundred million pound organization sits with a group of volunteers. However highly skilled, however dedicated, there is something about the paying of, of even a small honorarium that, that does a couple of things. One is it makes people psychologically much, much more committed. You're much, much less likely to sort of, you know, send you excuses. And secondly, it allows for a more diverse group of people to come on board. Uh, I mean, if you're only paying an honorarium, it, it, it doesn't doesn't fully cover that, but it does at least nod to the fact that you recognise that you need to compensate people for their time and skills. So, um, if I could make two, you know, in in the in the hopeful future world in which I become a supreme dictator, but yet I still have time to think about university governance, I would make two changes immediately. I would halve all board papers in length, and I would pay governors. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Jonathan, Steph, DK, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen behind the scenes. We'll be back next week. Mark will be here for a change. Until then, stay wonky. 